So this summer in Sunday school, we're going to be looking at the uh, big, big picture view of the Old Testament. Um, Jesus was really, really committed to how important the Old Testament is. Um, He just, when Jesus cited something from the Old Testament, that was it. The matter was settled. Uh, And so uh, we ought to take it really seriously as well. And, And part of that is seeing how the Old Testament is one big story from Genesis to, to the end from, and then the New Testament picks up on that story. Um, and, and we can better understand uh, who Jesus is and what he's come to do if we understand that he is uh, the climax of a story that begins all the way back in Genesis 1-1. Um, so that's, that's what we'll be uh, looking at this summer. Um, and we're going to begin in the beginning with creation. Uh, and when I say that word creation... Uh, for many of us, uh, questions will start jumping to our minds. Uh, some of us, myself included, start to feel a little antsy when we talk about creation, particularly with, que- particularly with questions about science and the Christian faith. Uh, but not just that. There's a whole host of questions that might jump to our minds when we think about the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, and that is understandable and to be expected because this is one of the most intensely studied texts in the entire Bible. So there's lots of stuff we could talk about, but um, rather than talk about everything, because I can't, uh, uh, we're going to focus on just what I I think is the main point that the author of Genesis wants us to know, uh, which is what, uh, what this tells us about God, what it tells us about the world, and what it tells us about uh, us human beings. Um, so that's what we'll be looking at. Uh, and when we start to look at the creation story in Genesis, it's, it's a pretty unusual one in at least a couple of ways. For one thing, it's not actually one creation story. Uh, it's two, right? You have, you have, in Genesis 1, you have the story of, of, the, of the six days of creation and on the seventh, God rests. And then uh, in chapter 2, we get things sort of starting over again with uh, the creation of Adam and Eve. So we have two distinct creation stories that, that uh, the author of Genesis put together, um, and they give us uh, sort of complementary uh, views that, that um, when, when, we, when we put them together, when we read them together like the author wants us to, we get a fuller, more robust picture of who our God is. Um, so we'll be looking at them uh, one and then, and then the other. Um, and then another really unusual thing uh, about the creation story is that it gives us uh, a picture of a God who is really unlike the, the gods in, in the ancient Near East. Um, it might not be surprising that, that uh, Genesis is not the only creation story that we have. Um, from its time period and region. There's this uh, ancient Babylonian creation story um, called Enuma Elish. And uh, I think when we, when we, it's strikingly different. And then the contrast uh, between that and Genesis, I think will really bring out what is distinctive about our God, about our world, and about us um, in Genesis. So uh, we're going to look at uh, what Enuma Elish has to say, the Babylonians have to say about, about these things, and then also what Genesis 1 has to say about these things. So, um, first, uh, who is our God? 
Um, who does Genesis 1 say our God is? Uh, so in this Babylonian story, um, there's lots of gods. Uh, it all begins with this, uh, this uh, god and goddess married couple, uh, Apsu and Tiamat. And then Tiamat gives birth to all these different gods. And uh, uh, so we read at the beginning of, I have this passage here um, from the beginning of Enuma Elish. When the heavens above did not exist and the earth beneath had not come into being, there was Apsu, the first in order their begetter, and Demiurge Tiamat, who gave birth to them all. When not one of the gods had been formed or had come into being, when no destinies had been decreed, the gods were created within them. So there's all sorts of gods. Um, and uh, they're really temperamental and childish and self-centered. Uh, so Tiamat gives birth to all these different gods, you know, a bunch of divine children. And uh, as I'm sure the parents in the room can relate, uh, the, the children uh, cause a ruckus. And, and uh, their parents can't, can't rest. Uh, but uh, unlike uh, probably the parents in this room, um, they start a war about it. Um, it, it, it comes to armed conflict. Uh, the, the divine brothers came together. Their clamor got loud, throwing Tiamat into a turmoil. They jarred the nerves of Tiamat, and by their dancing, they spread alarm in Andaruna. Apsu opened his mouth and addressed Tiamat. Their behavior has become displeasing to me, and I cannot rest in the daytime or sleep at night. I will destroy and break up their way of life that silence may reign and we may sleep. Uh, I, I doubt the parents in the room have, have thought when, you're, when your kid is crying, I'm going to destroy and break up their way of life. You know, this is, uh, we expect mature adults to be more mature than, than the gods in, in this Babylonian story. and arbitrary. Yeah, absolutely. For, if you know, like, Greek mythology, it's kind of the same picture. Um, but then compare that to Genesis 1 and, and the picture of God that we see there. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just God. There's just one God, and he made everything. Um, and if you read Genesis 1, there is no, there's no question that this one God who made everything is, is the protagonist of the whole thing. The word God appears 35 times in something like 34 verses, I think. Uh, and usually as the subject, doing the action. Uh, it, it's, it's clear there's just one God, not this huge family of gods. Um, and this God in, in Genesis 1, uh, it's hard to imagine him uh, filing a noise complaint because the birds are squawking or something. Uh, th this God is, is exalted and elevated above creation, just speaks and things come into being. Uh, th this is God almost as a, a disembodied voice just speaking from off stage. Um, it, it, God doesn't need to go to war to rest on the seventh day. Uh, we, if we just grow up on, on this narrative, we can take that for granted. But in the ancient, in the ancient world, that's really striking. Uh, if, you're, if you're tempted to, to worship the sun like people in the ancient world did... Uh, you can look at Genesis and say, no, I'm not going to worship the sun because God made the sun and I'll worship God. Right? Um, so this God in Genesis 1 is strikingly different. Um, and then now let's look at the, the act of creating itself. 
Um, so in, in, in this Babylonian story, um, there's the war because of the noise complaint. Uh, and then this god Marduk uh, arises and kills Tiamat. Uh, and then creates the world out of her corpse. It's, it's really gruesome. Uh, Marduk let fly an arrow and pierced Tiamat's belly. He tore open her entrails and slit her inwards. He bound her and extinguished her life. He threw down her corpse and stood on it. He split her in two like a dried fish. One half of her he set up and stretched out as the heavens. He stretched the skin uh, and appointed a watch with the instruction not to let her waters escape. Uh, I wouldn't want my kids reading that story. And, and now imagine yourself in uh, Babylonian Sunday school. And this is, this is what you're studying. You know, this, is how, this is how the world came into being. Uh, what would that teach you about the world? Uh, what kind of person would that form you into? Uh, not a nice one. No, it, it, I think it, it teaches that violence is inherent to the world. Uh, that peace is not really a viable option because violence has been with us in the, since the very beginning and the whole world came into being through violence. Uh, so why strive for lasting peace uh, if, if the whole world came about through violence? Um, but then compare that to Genesis 1. Uh, God just opens his mouth, and through utterly nonviolent speech, things come into being. There's this refrain that happens over and over on each of the days. And God said, and it was so, and, saw, and God saw that it was good. Um, peace is a, is a from, from a, a Christian worldview formed by Genesis 1, lasting peace between people. Uh, between nations is possible. It's viable because that's how God made it in the beginning, right? Um, and the world is is good and peaceful at its core even after the fall. Right? There, there is something good about the world that even sin can't destroy. Uh, that's, that's strikingly different, just the act of creation. Um, and then what might be most striking to me is, is the difference... Uh, between these two narratives and and what it tells us about humanity. Um, In the Babylonian story, after after Marduk uh, creates the world out of Tiamat's body, um, humans are made as slaves so that the gods can finally rest. I mean, the war started with the gods wanting to rest, so now they make slaves so that the gods can actually rest. Uh, Marduk opened his mouth, I will bring together blood to form bone. I will bring into being Lulu, whose name shall be man. I will create Lulu, man, on whom the toil of the gods will be laid, that they may rest. Uh, In the Babylonian story, human beings are just around to toil away with the work that the gods should be doing, but aren't, because they just want to lounge around and rest. Um... What, is, what does that tell us then about human dignity? Right? There is no human dignity in that picture. We're, we're just slaves. Um, but then in Genesis 1, we get this remarkable, uh, this remarkable picture. Um, 
towards the end of, of Genesis 1. Uh, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So unlike that other story from the ancient world, uh, here in Genesis 1, human beings have inherent value because God made them in his very own image. Uh, and th- there's no suggestion that God needs us to toil so that he can rest on the seventh day. Um, and this, this phrase, image of God, is striking because in the ancient world, kings, not, not regular people, but kings were usually uh, called the image of God. Um, and, and even today, we still... Uh, often have this idea that some human beings are more valuable than others. Um, Queen Elizabeth. Hmm. Uh, no, no comment on the British monarchy. <laughs> uh, I, I have a, a Londoner uh, friend at the seminary. He, he, he's quite fond of her, actually. <laughs> but uh, I, have this, I have this passage here from, from Aristotle. I'm not going to read it, but uh, he, Aristotle had this had this uh, awful, horrible idea that some, some people are by nature meant to be rulers and some people are by nature meant to be slaves, right? So that was a common idea in the ancient world. We might not phrase it like that today, but I think we still have this idea that some people, I think in some parts of our culture, we have this idea that some people are more valuable than others. Um, but here in Genesis 1, all human beings have equal dignity because the, the, the image of God is democratized in ancient Israel. Everyone has, has equal dignity because everyone's made in the image of God, right? Uh, even, even slaves, even women. That's unheard of in the ancient world. Um, and, and this is, historically in the West, this is the basis for human rights, the, the idea of human rights. This is... Uh, uh, motivation for the pursuit of justice. Um, this, is, this one I will read, this uh, portion of a sermon by Martin Luther King. Uh, we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is why we must fight segregation with all our nonviolent might. I think think if we really grasp this idea that every human being is made in the image of God, that will inspire us to to, to work for the the sake of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, as Jesus puts it. So then, oh, yeah. Alex, you flesh out the image of God. I don't really wonder about that. I mean, Yeah. Um, I, th- I thought about putting that in this morning, but then realized I, I actually, uh, I don't really know. So, uh, His attributes 
He's got attributes that we have attributes. He creates out of nothing, but we create out of something. He loves, we love. Yeah. Uh, those, that's the image of God that I think the Bible is talking about, that we have the non-communicable attributes and communicable mm. attributes at the same time. I guess that's the image of God. Yeah, and that's, that's uh, a really, it, there's a lot of theologians up and down the centuries who have uh, said something to that effect, that there are, that the, the idea that we're made in the image of God means that we have some of the, the qualities that God has. Um, some have said, you know, reason, if we're able to reason, that's because Morality, we're made in the image of God. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I think there's a, a, a degree of truth to that, right? We, we're a lot smarter than animals. Um, and, and if a, if a tiger kills someone, we don't, we, we might get upset about, about it. I mean, we will get upset about it. We might, uh, put the tiger down, but we're not going to say that's an evil tiger. Right. If a human being kills someone, we might say that's an evil human. So there, there's something. I think there's something to that. Um, that that there's that we we're able to reason better than animals. We're able to make moral decisions in a way that animals can't. But here, here's where I think it breaks down. Is um, Einstein was a lot smarter than all of us in this room. Does that mean that Einstein is more in the image of God? Than the rest of us, if it, right, um, but if we say that some human abilities may, are, are, are what makes us in the image of God, then that means that people with more ability have more value, more dignity than those who don't. But I would and, say it's capacity, not ability. Yeah, capacities. Yeah, um, maybe. I the 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 concern there is, I th- I think. I think King got it right in this sermon I put in here, this sermon section, where he said there's no gradations in the image of God. Uh, if we're able to, to say, I, I want to be able to say on the one hand, yes, we're a lot smarter than the animals, we're able to make moral choices, we're able to love in a way that, that other animals cannot. On the other hand, we all have equal worth and dignity, irrespective of you know, uh, differences in our individual capacities for these things. Um, but yeah, a lot of, this is, a lot of theologians have written about this and I think that's, that's all I, I don't think I can square that circle. Um, does that, does that help? That, that's a good question. Who, who asked it? Oh yeah. <laughs> Did that help? <laughs> sure. Yeah. And that troublemaker hasn't accepted my theory either, so, which is that, you know, the context, one of the contexts is God rules and he's created man to rule man's world. But, uh, again, that doesn't quite square the circle either. Mm. I think it ovals. Yeah, I think it, it might oval it, yeah, because I think that's part of it too, right? Well, it can't be talking about looks or appearance. It has to be talking about something else. And it has to be talking either about attributes or actions that we do, that God does. Function. Uh, it can't be about looks, appearance. Right. It has to be about something else. Yeah, because God doesn't have a body. No, yeah. We we think about God with the big long beard, but that's that's just the Sistine Chapel, right? That's not. Yeah. Agree. That's how we move on, right? <laughs> yeah, that that was a really good question. Um, all right. So the second creation story. Um, 
now we go from God as a kind of disembodied voice to to God with with dirt under his fingernails. Now I just said God doesn't have a body, so that's uh, I'm I'm speaking uh, figuratively, but. Uh, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Um, so here we see God, and this is what I mean about the two, the two creation stories sort of complementing each other, filling each other out. Because now we see God not detached from the world and just speaking from off stage, as it were. But now uh, he's getting his fingers in the dirt and he's, he's uh, given, given this man mouth to mouth, right? Uh, breathing, breathing into his nostrils. Um, th- this is God intimately involved. Um, yeah, mouth, mouth to nose, you're right. No, nostrils. Uh, now I just said God doesn't have a body, I'm, you know, figuratively. But. Um, <clears throat> And then after God makes this human being, uh, he, he commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. <clears throat> now, I think a lot of us focus on the, the last part of this, but we forget the first part of this. We, we focus on the prohibition, don't eat of that tree. Uh, but that's not God's first word. God's first word is eat, eat everything, eat anything. It's, it's all there for you. Uh, I, I've made uh, all of these trees that you can eat and enjoy. Um, but also there's that one tree. You shouldn't eat from that one. But everything else is for you. I think that's the emphasis here. God, God's first word to us, and it's not just to, to Adam, but God's first word to us too is Kindness and grace. Uh, I, th- I think. And abundance. And abundance. Yeah, and abundance. Yeah. Yeah. This this and he kindness and, and grace. And he didn't say to Adam, "Don't kill Eve. Don't go down to the red light district. Don't do this. Don't do that." He, he, only one simple thing: don't eat. One thing. Yeah. I got that from Keller at Redeemer. Just one thing. And he still screwed up. Yeah. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, think, I think that's the emphasis uh, here is, is it's grace first. It's kindness first. But then also there's that one tree. Don't, don't eat from that. But, you know, everything else is for you. Um, and then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So then God makes all the animals, and none of them are fit for him. Uh, and then God uh, creates Eve out of, out of Adam's rib. Um, and then Adam breaks out in the song, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Um, now one might wonder, I, I think as, as many of us have, um, or at least I've wondered before, uh, doesn't this diminish women then? Because Eve is just made as a helper to Adam after the fact. Uh, this, is, this is something I've heard before, at least. Um, I think that's missing the point. Yeah. You know, how it really went, right? God said, you know, make it help me. And the man said, how much is it, how much is it going to cost me? I'm going to lay. And then he said, no, I'm just, just help her a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um... 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think I, I have a few. I have a few reasons that, that I put down that I think uh, I think that's missing. I think the the idea that this diminishes women somehow is is missing the point. Um, Adam needed help. Yeah. That Some, bring women. I mean, without women, Adam would have failed. Because mm. God, he saw that he needed to help me. Yeah. I mean, he needs somebody. Yeah, something in creation is not good. Yeah. For the first time, we see that something is not good. And then it's not until Eve's created that it's, it's good. Right? Uh, I, I, think, I think that's huge. Um, compare, compare that to, I didn't put this down, but uh, Aristotle had this idea of, of women being uh, similar to slaves. Right, by nature. Um, so we had that quote on the previous page. That, yeah, Aristotle had some messed up ideas, but he wasn't really all that unusual in the ancient world. Women were not, but compared to, compared to this, uh, something is not good until Eve is made. Um, and then in, we have to recall uh, the image of God text from the previous chapter, too, that uh, there's no suggestion there that there's any, there's any uh, value difference between men and women. No, men and women are equally in the image of God. Right? Uh, that is established before this. Um, and also God is described uh, as a helper with the same Hebrew word. Uh, I just put down a few examples of this. Uh, there's actually so many examples that it would have taken up like three or four lines on the page to give all the examples. Uh, right? if, if God is described as a helper... Does that diminish God? No, no, because God is God, right? Um, so that, as just a side note, because I've, I've heard this said a lot and I've wondered about it before. Um, but backing up and looking at both of the creation stories together, um, we get this picture of, uh, if, if, we, if we think about what the two creation stories each tell us about God and then put them together, uh, I think we get this picture emerging of this God who is uh, transcendent, is, is the word that they use at seminaries, um, highly exalted over the world, uh, distinct from the world, separate, uh, this voice from off offstage, um, higher than we can imagine, uh, but then also uh, imminent, uh, you know, intimately involved with creation, dirt under his fingernails. Um, and this is, a, this is a picture in just the first opening pages of Genesis that, that comes up again and again, uh, like in Psalm 113. Uh, the Lord is high above all heavens and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? This exalted God. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. So God is, is high and exalted, but not so high and exalted that, that he doesn't want to be intimately involved with us. Um, like the deists. Hmm, yeah. God is out there, wound us up and split for the coast. Right. No, no suggestion of that. Right. Um, and I think... The character of God that we see in just the opening pages of Genesis with these two stories put together is the character of the God Jesus, who, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Already in just the opening couple of chapters of Genesis, we see a picture of God emerge um, that, that culminates in, in uh, the God Jesus Christ who leaves heaven for, for rescuing us, um, born in a manger, fingers in the dirt kind of a God. A nasty manger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's the picture of God that, that we see in just the opening pages. So before we move on to the fall, uh, any questions at this point? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, to what extent, you know, I, I know we're starting this because from here because this is where the scripture starts, but to what extent is this to be read, you know, poetically versus literally? For instance, you know, it, the wording implies that, you know, God is expending energy, yet he, he has infinite power. I mean, he can, you know, he can create anything without effort. You know, uh, you know, we know from his description in scripture that he, you know, he knows everything. He, he knows everything. He, you know, I don't know how much your views are on lapsarianism, but, uh, he, I don't even know uh, that word. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, obviously, you know, he is, you know, decreed that what will happen before it happens. Mm. Yet, this makes it sound like he's uh, sequentially, you know, thinking and, you know, he, you know, his thoughts develop as his creation develops. You know, I I don't question, you know, the, that everything here is literally true, but I, mm. I wonder how, to what extent must it be understood as, you know, as poetic writing as opposed to, uh, you know, literal, you know, literal, you know, history. Yeah. Um... <laughs> That's a good question, uh, and I think I think it'll I think it's a question that will come up throughout the whole Old Testament. Um, you know, if you if you remember the story of King Saul, it's like God regrets having appointed King Saul. Well, how does that how does God regret if He knows everything from the beginning? Um, is that that's the sort of thing you're you're getting at? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think it's a good question. I, I haven't a clue. <laughs> it's just to be understood from this side, yeah, from our side, that he was, I can't understand it, it's a mystery, but as his subject, I have to understand it from this side, that he was, uh, 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 what, what's the word, that he uh, was sorry that he mm. made man. Uh, I can't understand how he's thinking about that. But I can understand it because he's given me his spirit to understand that, you know, he's telling us that this is the result and, and, and uh, I'm, I'm very, very sorry that I did this. It can only be understood from this side, mm. you know, uh, darkly and through a dark glass. Yeah. You know, we can't understand that. It's a mystery. Through a mirror dimly. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. How does it feel when God is sorry for something, repentant? No idea. I can't understand that. Uh, John. One perspective I have is that God, our sovereign God, is the writer of history. He's a poet. Mm. The writer of history is a poet. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I think just to follow up on that, if you if you contrast this with the other narratives in the ancient world, you know, this one is very different because it starts from the um, perspective of God. Whereas the other 
sing of the wrath of that man, Achilles. And mm. that's the story is about the man and his wrath. Or Aeneid says, you know, I sing of arms and of the man. And that, if you start from that perspective, you reach a very different conclusion than you do if you start from this perspective poetically, which is the perspective of God. Um, you know, and, and this point is really brought home by the way those civilizations work themselves out, whereas you know, the Greek city-states, there was constant warfare, mm. because the perspective was to do good to your enemy uh, friends and harm to your enemies. And the other one was just as important, it was just as important to harm your enemies as it was to do good yeah. to your friends. And you know that leads to the situation that resulted in basically the destruction of that way of life. Yeah. Some would argue. Um, whereas this, you know, turn the other cheek and, and this sort of thing. So it's fundamentally completely um, apparent from, let's say, a human perspective. Poetically, you know, it gives us a, a different perspective and, and a. Um, it's just very unique. Now, we don't really appreciate that, I think, because we've grown up in it. You know? Right. We've grown up in a Christian society where even if you don't go to church, even if you don't um, believe any of this, the society still has that Christian ethos. Yeah, ethos that you know, it's not okay to do certain things. That yeah. Just to be mean. It's not okay to be a mean person, you know? Whereas that was kind of expected. Society, you know, like you know, you get this thing. We are, you're slaves, you know. You're gonna be a slave because that's the way God made you. I mean, that's yeah. a very different perspective than this. Yeah, well said. Uh, just reading the Iliad this summer, I was, uh, and yeah, it's a very different picture. Um, yeah. All right. Temptation. We got a scoop. All right. Um, so, picking up from the second story of creation with Adam and Eve, uh, not all is well. Uh, there's a serpent, and the serpent tempts the humans in their, in their idyllic life. Um, and I think that the temptation narrative, I think, teaches us a lot about the nature of temptation for us now. Um, I think in at least two ways. I mean, this is deep, deep stuff. Uh, there's way more to it, but I, I'll just highlight two things that I think that this teaches us. Um, the serpent's first word to Eve is, did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree in the garden? No, God did not actually say that, right? Uh, God said, eat of any tree in the garden, except just not that one, but eat any of them, right? Uh, the serpent's first strategy of temptation is to get Eve to doubt the, the, the kind graciousness of God toward, towards her. Um, God's, first mer- God's first move toward these humans was grace, but uh, the serpent wants, wants to get them to think, no, actually, God made all these trees, and you're not allowed to eat from any of them. That would be cruel, right? That wouldn't be gracious. Uh, and, and I think we do the same thing. Um, we misunderstand to be a, a we misunderstand God to be a divine killjoy a lot of the time. Uh, whereas in reality, God is far more committed to our joy than we are. Um, 
and, and when, when we forget God's commitment to our ultimate joy, then uh, God's commands and prohibitions uh, end up seeing, seeming much more burdensome to us than they really are. Uh, and then we inadvertently follow the serpent's temptation strategy. Um, but, but in reality, God is far more committed to our lasting, flourishing, and joy than, than even we are ourselves. Um, so temptation doubts God's grace. And it's also, and, th- and this, one, this one frightens me sometimes, temptation is partially truthful. Uh, serpent says to the, to the woman, you will not surely die if you eat the fruit from that tree that God told you not to eat from. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, if, if we've been with this story a while, we'll, our first instinct will be to think the serpent's straight up lying. Uh, but actually, there's a superficial truthfulness to what the serpent is saying. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they do not immediately die. There's no bolt of lightning from heaven that, that kills them, right? There, there, there's a, a cherubim with a flaming sword, but the cherubim with the flaming sword doesn't come and kill them, right? Uh, it, one, one second. They are going to die. Yeah, so we'll get to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but in a superficial way, the serpent's right. And then even at the end of the narrative, uh, at the end of the chapter, God acknowledges that there's some sense in which Adam and Eve have become like God after having eaten the fruit. I don't really know what that sense is, if I'm being honest, but God says that there's some sense in which they've become like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent is, in a superficial way, telling the truth. But, like Raoul was saying, in a deeper way, it's, it's misleading. Uh, because that disobedience does bring death into the world, even if they don't immediately get struck by a bolt of lightning. Um, Paul talks about this uh, quite a bit in his letters in the New Testament, that through the the disobedience of Adam and Eve, death comes into the world. Um, And then uh, humanity is already made in God's image and likeness, so it doesn't make much sense for Adam and Eve to try to eat this fruit that they weren't allowed to eat in order to become like God when they're already like God. Right? Uh, You don't need to disobey God to become what God has already made you to be. Uh, That is, like God in his image. So there's a superficial truthfulness to what the serpent is saying, and that is the strategy of temptation, I think. Uh, In our own temptations that, that we deal with, uh, there's a superficial truthfulness to them, or else they wouldn't actually be temptations. They wouldn't actually be appealing to us at all, right? Uh, if uh, if I'm tempted to cuss out my roommate, uh, in a superficial sense, it will actually feel good in the moment to to yell at him. If uh, to, to clear the air is my, how I might tell myself, uh, right? Um, It'll feel good to, to, to yell at them and, and just unburden myself in a really mean way. Uh, but in a deeper way, no, that's, that actually will do nothing good for the relationship, and it'll actually just cause problems. Um, I, I think our, our own, and you can come up with your own examples, I think temptations that we struggle with are built on a layer of superficial truth that hides the, the deeper reality that actually God and not sin fulfills our, our deepest needs. Um, and I, I think we see this, uh, this dynamic in the temptation narrative. Um, then Adam and Eve eat the fruit. 
they don't grasp that deeper, deeper truth. Um, and the human's disobedience divides what God had put together. Um, there's division between humanity and the rest of creation. Uh, whereas in the beginning, uh, God says, eat of all these trees. Uh, now God tells Adam that the ground is cursed because of you. Uh, in pain you shall leave it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure we can relate. Um, I'm sure uh, those of us who are going to, to work tomorrow morning will, will be able to relate. Uh, that, that work is hard. Um, there's a, this division between us and the world. Uh, division between humans. Uh, right after eating, eating the fruit, uh, the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Uh, instead of being naked and unashamed together, they cover themselves up. Um, and we do the very same thing, right? If, if a visitor comes to the church and thinks, wow, I don't want to come to this church, it's full of a bunch of perfect people, uh, we're doing the very same thing by, by covering up our real selves with one another. Uh, Div- dividing ourselves off from one another. Even wearing clothes. Well, okay. Uh, I don't know about that. I, I think clothes are a good thing. God had to kill something and cover their shame. Okay. And, and that's clothes. Yeah. So you're not advocating so that's why that we, we should have all be nudists. From then until now. Am I right? Or not? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I. I don't. Why can't we walk around naked? Well, uh, in New England, we would freeze. <laughs> Why do we wear clothes today? If, if, because of sin. Mm. Unless there's some other reason. The weather. Yeah, I think the weather might be part of it. Uh, so then, yeah. if it was in paradise, Adam and Eve would have needed coats? I, I don't know. Greg, help me out. Well, I, so I think there's, there's a good sense in which, like you're saying, God provides clothes for them. Clothes, in some sense, are protection in a fallen world, mm-hmm. right? Because if we were all walking around naked, actually, we'd all be very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, and, and in a fallen world, that's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, it's because this is not a safe world that we live in. We don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore, where there's, you know, no hint of lust or no hint of disrespect. Or I mean, the world is full of all kinds of. You know, our hearts are full of sin. So, so in some ways, like, like, like there's a good sense in which clothing and other provisions are part of God's sort of restraining evil in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think what you're also saying, Alex, is that there's a sense in which, you know, in marriage, right, Adam and Eve are not supposed to hide from each other, right? They're not supposed to cover up their real selves, mm-hmm. you know? And in some sense, in the family of God, we're, we're able to be open with one another because we have a safe place through Christ, Right, and so like there's a sense in which redemption, being redeemed, doesn't just mean covering up our shame or covering up our sin. It's acknowledging our sin and sort of bringing it out into the light before Christ, who accepts us and covers our shame with His love and His righteousness, so that that basically it it goes even deeper, you know. So so I, there's sort of a good sense. There's a maybe two senses covering up. Yeah. Uh, in one second, I'll just finish up this thought. Great. Um, but then even though there's division between uh, humans in the world, humans in one another, humans in God, uh, Adam and Eve hide from God. Uh, 
nevertheless, the, the essential goodness of the world is, is not utterly obliterated by, by the fall. Uh, you know, we, we can still do agriculture. You know, we can still get food from the ground. That's, that's a really great thing, right? Uh, we can go to work this week and, and actually get something done. It's, it's possible for us to actually do useful work, albeit with great effort, but we're not utterly alienated from, from creation. We're not utterly alienated from one another. Uh, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, I'd love for that dwelling in unity to happen a lot more often, but it still happens. Um, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. Uh, the, the narrative picks up in chapter 4. Um, their marriage is not utterly destroyed. Uh, and uh, like uh, was said a minute ago with the clothing, God clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins, uh, showing this ongoing fatherly kindness towards them. Even though they hide from God, nevertheless, even though they disobey God, nevertheless, God continues to show a fatherly care towards them and clothing them. Um, and then that... that posture of kindness uh, ends up uh, launching into uh, God's rescue mission for the world, for, for humans, um, through Abraham's family, which is where we'll be picking up uh, next week with the, with the uh, life of Abraham. But now, uh, closing, closing questions and thoughts, I, I promised I would uh, get back to you. a lot there in, in the first three chapters of Genesis. Uh, there's a reason it's one of the most studied parts of the Bible, and we just sort of skimmed the surface this morning. But, um, uh, yeah. Um, cool. Uh, it's about time. Uh, so let's, let's pray. Um, Father, you um, are high and mighty and exalted above everything. You are higher than we can imagine. And yet, you are um, loving and kind to us and and want to know each one of us. Um, We we thank you uh, that you have that posture of kindness towards us um, as our Father. Uh, 
and we thank you that um, you've made a, a good world for us and that even though we made a mess of it, uh, nevertheless, you are making all things new. Um, Lord, help us to um, live as people who have this hope uh, that you are making all things new. Uh, help us to live as, as um, people um, of this new creation that, you, that you're bringing about in Christ. Um, in, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.